Welcome to the Not Old Yet podcast, where we explore the subject of aging from a fresh new perspective. Each week, you will learn how to look, feel, and be youthful, no matter your age or stage of life. Tune in each episode to hear words of wisdom, stories of hope, and keeping it real advice from your host, Elizabeth Vanderveer. We got a beautiful story. I'm Elizabeth, your host of the Not Old Yet Global Podcast, and today we're coming here with a special guest, and that is Jan Jordan, who is here from Ireland. Hi, Jan. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome. We're so happy to have you here, and today we're talking about a topic that is not only near and dear to my heart, but it terrifies me, and that's the topic of motherhood. And it terrifies me not because I haven't been there, done that. I did. But it's the hardest job in the world. And it's a lot harder than being a doctor. It's certainly a lot harder than doing this podcast. But you are doing it with aplomb. You're doing it with grace. You're doing it with elegance. And yet it's a conscious choice that you made. It's not that you were funneled into this or it was a decision that you made because nothing else was going right in your life you have a degree in naturopathy you also worked at google for eight years you've been in it you've had a very successful life outside of being a mother and yet you consciously chose to be a mother and i should interject and say we have a special guest with you and that is your newborn (laughs) adorable little boy that's actually on the breast as we speak so we may hear from him you never know and you have four others so five boys from the age of zero to ten you live in Ireland you're highly educated you're highly skilled and you live a life that I think a lot of us dream of now there's some differences in culture because you're in Ireland I'm in uh, the United States but The basic yearning to be loved and to love other human beings is basically what parenthood is all about. And yet, I think we're getting it wrong more and more and more. And so what I'd like you to do, Jan, is just share with us your secret sauce. And really, it's all about what you did to be comfortable making this decision that kind of flies in the face of modern convention that says you have to leave your children, you have to go into the workforce, you always have to be short on time and energy and money and misery, a high on misery and stress and deadlines. And you said some really interesting things to me in preparation for this interview. So I just want you to take it away and take it where this all leads you in the context that There's a lot of people that want to be living the way you're living. So maybe start with just sharing some insight into your life. Anything you feel moved to share with us? Okay. First of all, I want to say that it's certainly not an easy task, as you said. And there's many reasons why people become women, become parents, you know, could be accidentally as well, could be very consciously and a mix of, of both. And it certainly is um, something I felt very unprepared for. And to give you a bit of background, both my parents work, you know, my mom and my dad. And growing up in a family of girls, I have two sisters, 
two sisters, a bigger one and a younger one. Mm. And we were just raised to, I guess we had to study. And the goal was not to be dependent financially on a man. I think my dad really wanted us to be able to be financially independent, which I understand. So then um, I went in, you know, I studied, I was successful. I landed a good job uh, quickly. It's hard to beat Google, girl. (laughs) At the time, it was probably a bit easier to get in, but it was still already six interviews. Plus, you had to send all your college grades and all, you know, you needed straight A's everywhere. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. When you were junior, because, you know, if you had not a lot of experience to show for yourself at the time, they would reckon that to see how good you were, they would ask for your college grade. So then it came as a big surprise when then our first son was born that all of a sudden I had no more interest in all that. Success was irrelevant. And what I wanted was to stay with my child. You know, in, in Ireland, we have a, a longer maternity leave that you would have a, in America, from what I understand. Uh, you, you can take about six months um, off, um, sometimes on your full salary, and um, sometimes on less than that. So I had time with my child. Six months is a lot more than what many women get in America from my understanding and yet I was so anxious and miserable when I was thinking about having to go back and well I did it I went back to work because we needed you know the funds we had goals you know we wanted to buy a house we had all those things we wanted to do so motherhood came as a big shock in the sense that I thought I was prepared but I wasn't prepared for the the feelings I was going to get that the things I had been preparing myself for during you know, my university, my studies, were just so inadequate compared to what I felt I needed now. Because once you have a big job, once you're used to an income, it's really hard to do without and to just say, you know what, I'm going to stay at home now and my, my child. It just, it was not an option. What was it that you felt? Was there any specific moments that you could look back on and say that was a life-changing moment for you when you decided to make a shift from working at Google or whatever you were doing into the home? Pretty much straight away when the the baby was born. Um, So then came uh, six very hard years of working and having, well, I had the children, you know, so, you know, being a working mom, basically. Then I had another child a few years after and then another one. So no, um, the realization that I wanted to stay home with them came straight away. But the fact that um, the possibility, financial and in terms of time, it took another six years to actually materialize um, just for financial reasons. At the time, um, we decided that we wanted that um, financial independence so we both myself and my husband could do things that we wanted. But obviously, we had to do it uh, step by step. So my husband didn't enjoy his job. So we were like, well, I'm going to keep working at Google. It's great job, great money, lovely team. So I'll keep on doing that and you'll set up your business. And once your business is ready, then I'll step back. So that was the, the agreement and it just took years. Well, that's very interesting because I went to, I think it was a Tony Robbins seminar where they likened a business to a child and then going through the life cycle. So you basically had to get your business off the ground, like to a toddler or a young adult stage before you could step back into the home. 
But what's interesting about the timing of that is many people after six years in the workforce would say, oh, it's of no use to go back in the home, or they get so caught up in their own identity as a worker in that company that they don't make that choice, you know, six years mm-hmm. later. Like, you'll just stay on that treadmill. I did. I mean, mm-hmm. I had my kids in medical school. I put them in daycare or had a nanny and, you know, kept mm-hmm. up on that treadmill and never stepped back to take a look at, was this the right decision for me? I'm very lucky that now I have a relationship with my adult children that is exactly what I could hope for. But a lot of people don't get that opportunity. And I hear people saying all the time, oh, I'll go back to work when they're six years old, not when, not that you'll stay home when they're six. Does that make sense? So yes. tell me a little bit more about why you stopped working outside the home and went to become the CEO of the home when your kids were how old? Six and four? Or how did the, Yeah, yeah. The eldest was a uh... Six, uh, we had, yeah, they were, yeah, they were six, four, and two, more or less. Well, um, what's an interesting dynamic in your story, Jan, is that you also homeschool your five children. Why well, say five? Because even the infant in your arms is being schooled by you, by being helped by you. So you school them at home. So at age six and four or whatever your kids were at that time, you didn't even have to... Con- now, did you homeschool them at that time? Did you go no. right into homeschooling? No, by, by then, uh, back then they were, in, the, the, yeah, they were in school. Okay. So, it, so it was also something us. we wanted to do and we just couldn't before. So how did you make the decision to pull your kids out of school and homeschool them? And how the heck do you know how to homeschool? Is there like a whole curriculum for that? I don't have any idea. Yeah, well, we're very lucky in Ireland that it's a right that's protected by the Irish Constitution. So to remove homeschooling, you know, you would need a referendum. Um, So that's very, it's really interesting. Um, So it, it was always something that, that was on, on my mind, if you want. I, I never really enjoyed school. I, was, I felt like I was a very average student. Um, as I grew and matured, I realized that I wasn't. And if I put effort into something, I would get results. But as a child, I didn't get it. Um, I didn't understand that. Uh, so it was, um, I didn't like the, the local schools, uh, the options we have, you know. So we looked for a really nice school for our children that was quite expensive. So while I was working, it was okay if you want to do that and also once we had when we had less children but had we had you know the more children we had the more the question of is all that money uh, worth it for their education or can we educate them another way and considering that um homeschooling was always kind of an idea we just a couple of years ago we just decided to go for it and that coincided with um my husband uh, launching his his most recent business and all of a sudden and we had also sold our house and we're living somewhere else that wasn't costing us much so all of a sudden we were free we were free of our mortgage we were free to move around because my husband's um, work was online so all he needed was a, his computer and a good internet so it made sense to stop normal schooling if you want just to have that freedom Hmm. And it, it's an amazing thing to have, I must say. I don't know okay, how long we'll have it for. <laughs> but you have a degree, a medical degree, and you have a 
experience in IT at the world's best, mm -hmm. right? So, so how does someone that doesn't have all those advantages think about homeschooling? I mean, mm -hmm. how do you know what to teach? Is there a yes. workbook or? Uh, yeah, so there is so many people doing it out there, you know, so you can literally buy a curriculum. I know in America and Canada, you can buy specific curriculums. In Ireland, um, children work on a lot of uh, workbooks. So you just buy the workbooks for the adequate year and you go, you flip the pages and you work with your child. Um, so it's physically I, still a book, not a digital interface? No, no, no. They're starting this year in public school now to introduce tablets and all. Mm. Um, so it's interesting what's happening at the nationally. And uh, also, we, our eldest was in school for five years. And I found school was nice when they were young. But as soon as they started bringing homework back home, <laughs> that really changed a lot of things in terms of uh, my interactions with them, you know, of having to make them work in the evening. You know, when they were tired, when I was back from work and the crying and the, yeah, I just thought it was just really, wasn't really fun once they wow. passed the kin kindergarten stage. So then I realized that even if you send your children to school, you still have to do a lot of work after as a parent to make sure they're actually really learning and really retaining. Uh, so I was like, well, what, why don't we just do it, do all of it, you know? And wow. Especially my, my eldest had a bit of difficulties, you know, with numbers and mathematics in general and algebra. So we just had to do a lot of extra work. And I was like, oh, hold on, we're paying for a private school. They spend their, a good part of the day there and I come home and I still have to work, you know, with their homework. And it just didn't make a lot of sense. And also then during those five years when he was in school, it was a lovely school. We were really happy there. And I discovered that as a parent, I could understand what my child needed and how they learned, you know, I thought that was just a magic skill that only teachers had. And I realized that, hold on, I've been doing homework for the past, you know, three, four years. And I really see, you know, if he doesn't understand something, I can really explain it to him in a way that he understands. So I just realized that as a parent, if you take the time and observe, most likely you'll find the solution for your child. And if you don't find it, you'll just keep on searching until you have it, you know, because you You'll never give up on your child and on their learning and you'll never let them get away with not knowing something as well. You know, you won't right. skip knowledge, you know, and you'll discover that they only learn when they're ready as well. So, yeah. So that gave me confidence to have him in school for all those years, gave me confidence that actually I understood kind of the way it was done and how I could optimize it to use a really Google word. <laughs> you know, you can, you can learn, you know, you can improve. What gave, you, what gave you that confidence? Because I think confidence is lacking in parenting. And yeah. it's not just resistance. Like we all know that we're not confident and we don't like to tell our child no. And then they have mm -hmm. a temper tantrum and meltdown. That's understandable. But when you're talking mm -hmm. about sharing your gifts with your child, there's also a lack of confidence. And yeah. one of the things that I was most struck with by my mother is every time I would ask her a question, she would say, oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. That was her first response. And I was like, well, I'm looking to you as my mother, as an adult to tell me something, you know, like there's no shortage of opinions. But when I came to her for a true question, I didn't get that question answered. It was always, I don't know. And mm -hmm. in this era where you can look anything up online and you can, you know, get an answer, hopefully it's truthful, but 
you don't really have an excuse anymore for saying, I don't know, but there's still the confidence issue. So how did you get confident to blossom into this woman that can now homeschool five beings? And obviously you said something really interesting too, that struck me is that homeschooling allowed you to turn off the schooling part of it in the evening, mm -hmm. but the learning didn't end. I'm sure that when your husband comes home, he teaches, he interacts. I'm sure your learning to your children and your learning from your children doesn't end. It's just turned into a different dynamic. The construct yes. has changed. But how did you get the confidence to homeschool? Like, it can't just be subjugated to a workbook. Like, how did you know that you were going to have the ability to raise these young beings into thoughtful, curious entities that understand how to interact in the world? Because it seems like whether we have school or not, devices or not, nobody knows how to become a loved, loving human being anymore. So how do you mm -hmm. do that? Yeah, you, you said something interesting in terms of, of confidence. I guess the truth is that you never know. And I suffer from, you know, that FOMO, same as everyone else, you know, wondering. Am I, I love doing FOMO. The right thing? My son just taught me that. I don't know how you learned it, probably from your digital mastermind husband. FOMO, for those that don't know, is fear of missing out. <laughs> and I think that rules the world. It's what manipulation is made of. It's yeah. what illusion is made of. It's fear. Mm -hmm. You only need the first yeah. word of that sentence, fear of missing out, fear. Mm -hmm. But yes, how did you gain the confidence? How did you overcome the fear? I, I think it, it was by accepting that there is a big difference, first of all, between education and academics. That's something that, um, and from my understanding of the way things work in America, um, academics are very important and they are considered a factor of success. So a child with strong academics will perform better later on in life, which is, I think, quite debatable nowadays anyway. So that's the first difference. It's not the same. Good academics is not good education. I do most of the academics with the kids during the day. And you're right that when my husband comes home, he continues the education process together with me. That's called parenting, you know. <laughs> and um, it seems like it has become harder to parent properly. Nowadays, because of all that information, when I look at how it seems that my parents and my grandparents did things a lot more on instinct or on maybe following old rules, whether they were, they were probably a bit rough in many ways, um, but they were still useful. They were still good common guidances, you know, like the parent has to be the parent, like the parent is not the friend, uh, you know, big core um, values like that that were just passed on from generations to generations. Sometimes I look at, it seems like my parents didn't stress as much as I do, you know. They were just confident. The confidence was there because they had that knowledge. It seemed they already had it. Well, I have a question for you. You said that your parents both worked. So what yes. were the roles in your home? Mm -hmm. So they, they both worked, yeah. Um, but did your mom work when you were young or did she go back to the, work when you were older? She, she stopped when we were very young and then my parents set up a business together. And then I think their youngest child was only six months old and their eldest was probably five or six. So by the time, by that time, they were both working full time. Uh, we had a nanny that was home that was also doing the cleaning. 
um, in France, you stay in school until 5 or 6 p.m., um, you know, with homework club and stuff like that. So we were in there and we weren't traumatized by it. I was, and then in France, parents work from nine to seven because we, you know, people get massive two hour lunch break. <laughs> it's a very French thing. So it was just very normal to just go home, have dinner and go to bed. So, and on the weekend, uh, we were just all together, you know, we'd go to a few activities. And so the way my parents shared the parenting, you know, they saw us in the evening, they saw us on the weekend. My mom seemed to do a lot more of the household tasks, you know, from what I see. But my dad, very hands-on, you know, seemed very classic, uh, you know, doing a lot of DIY and, you know, he was very hands-on dad as well. So they all seemed to put, you know, to contribute with their own skills. Um, you know, you're bringing up such a good point, Jan, <laughs> and it's just freaking me out because here I am thinking about the American school system. And about how we're kind of doing it half fast. We take these kids for eight hours a day and then we send them home with a whole bunch of busy work. And when I was helping my kids when they were little with their homework and stuff and being in the classroom myself as a doctor, you know, and having to train, mm -hmm. I was like, well, why do we have all this homework? Like, couldn't they teach this in the school? And what's the purpose? I understand practicing, mm -hmm. but if you go somewhere five days a week and practice for a certain amount of time, you shouldn't need all that stuff at home. It's almost like the school system's doing it half-assed from the yeah. perspective of, oh, yeah, we'll take care of them from this time to this time, but then we're not going to fit in with your cultural norm. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we should be in America keeping our kids until 6 o'clock because that's when Americans finish the commute. You know, we have to mm -hmm. fit, factor in one to two hours of commuting on top of everything. But, Gosh. you know, the point is really well taken, what you just said about kind of simplifying really interesting point jan keep talking you're bringing up a lot of good good <laughs> and um, as well um, in within all the different countries you know in in europe um uh, education you're french right you grew I'm, up I'm in france yes. and now you live in ireland yeah okay so that's and, i mean i hate to say it but in america we love analogies so that's similar to growing up in florida and moving to wherever you know just you yeah. move to another country Go ahead. So the education system can be very different. You have um, what we call the Scandinavian countries, you know, that are uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, that uh, don't teach academics until eight years old, seven, eight years old. Kids don't, still don't know how to, they barely know how to read. It's only playing, confidence building. And they're some of the happiest nations. Uh, it produces really happy adults. I'm sure there are other factors. Uh, you have countries like uh, Germany and Austria that include a lot, of, a lot of nature in their curriculum. You know, they, they created all the Waldorf Steiner schools that I think are quite popular in California. Uh, with all I was going to ask you, you know, the, the Silicon Valley Waldorf. gang, you know, that send their kids there and where kids do, you know, a lot of nature, a lot of outdoors, sometimes the whole day, sometimes several days in a row until they're seven. And then it, you know, it continues on. I was going to ask you if in the home environment do you kind of do the Waldorf type education where you let your child mm -hmm. run with whatever they're interested in and let them decide mm -hmm. the depth and the breadth? Um, not quite. I'm quite interested in it but I don't have the, the confidence to do that because I feel they don't have their uh, acquired all their, their basics yet. You know there's a lot of ways to homeschool. Some parents wait until the child shows signs of being ready to learn how to read. Um, I tend to follow the national curriculum and tailor it to my children. 
because it reassures me, it gives me a track to follow for now. And as well, because I'm, I, even though I don't like to put the focus too much on academics, I understand the importance of it. If well, they want to go back other, into school, you know. One of the other things that we are dealing with in our country that's such an epidemic and disaster is nutrition. And oh, yeah. obviously, if you homeschool, you're also home feeding, most likely. Mm-hmm. And our school lunch program is just an abomination in our country. It's full of, you mm-hmm. know, refined processed food, no nutrients, nothing. The other day I was on the phone with your husband and one of your little ones came in and said, Daddy, I'm going to go get apples. And <laughs> he was going to go outside and get apples. And I thought that was the most adorable thing I'd ever heard. But the fact that this child is starting to learn where food comes from, and it comes from a plant, and he can go pick it and manipulate it himself. He doesn't have to buy it in a package in a store. Tell us how you even plan for feeding for five, and then how you fit that into your day. Because whether you have the means to eat out or not, you're not. You're making a conscious choice to feed your children at home most of the time. As, as I understand it, you can tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. but kind of how does one plan for five different ages and uh, <laughs> how do you do it? Give us any tips. Yeah. I mean, literally um, a tip would be incredible. Any tip? Yes. Okay. Before I answer that question, I just wanted to mention quickly the, the French, uh, French canteen system in school. You know, so... Primary school lasts for about 11 years. So in most French primary schools, uh, you're served a three-course meal at every lunch, you know. With um, I'll give you examples of the things we used to eat when we were kids. You know, a chef, a kitchen, a school chef is a chef, you know. A typical uh, entrance, you know, starter would be, you know, grated carrot salad, grated cabbage salad, or a small tomato salad portions, you know. Then you'll get your main course, which would be usually meat, veg, and carbs. You know, it could be um, sausage and mashed potatoes with Brussels sprouts. It could be, uh, we used to have, at the time, we used to have beef tongue, you know. The, the, <laughs> this was still allowed. Beef tongue with beetroot puree and, um, you know, some beans. You always have two slices of bread each and a big jug of water on the table. There are tables of eight. You have to bring your napkins. If you don't have your napkins, you know, uh, your fabric napkins from, from home, you know, if you'd be in trouble. So food is also part of education. You know, you would be at a table of eight. It was always the same table during the whole year and it was mixed age. So you could be sitting next to someone who was two years old, bigger, one year smaller. And you had your, your canteen table assigned for the whole year. You'd make friends from different ages and that's, check it out online. You know, you have tons of blogs of Americans that have gone to France for work and who couldn't believe well, the, that's the kind school. of what you're doing in your home. You have yeah, five different ages all interacting <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at the same that, table for a number absolutely. of years. And now answering that question, the first reality of that is that not everyone will be happy with my food at every meal. You know, if not, we'll be eating chicken nuggets and chips, then yeah, and ketchup and everyone would be happy. <laughs> but at every single meal, someone is dissatisfied. But it's okay. The satisfaction is part of life. And my children learn that. And they know that food is not just for pleasure. It's for eating. It's for nourishing your body. And that also part of growing up is tasting food that you don't know and maybe you don't like. And then tasting them again next time mommy makes them again because mommy never gives up. Exactly. <laughs> you, know, you always have one that doesn't like it. 
the salad well, or the pepper or the vinegar or whatever that the cut of meat and so that's normal and that's the beauty of big families as well is that you know it's like you don't like it well <laughs> you don't like it we'll make mikey eat it <laughs> well it's just i won't force them but I, I i'll make sure they try it each time and explaining them that the palate changes when you grow and it kind of usually my tip there is that to tell them you know you're getting older you know when you taste something that you've tasted tasted before and it, this time you like it you know oh. so then they know that then they have to try and if they like it for whatever reason it's a sign that they got bigger you know they're still at the age when they like to be bigger get bigger so like yo i'm five now i'm six now i'm seven you know so i kind of use that um no, that attitude <laughs> it's actually brilliant jam because you're using positive reinforcement not negative reinforcement like yeah. if you don't eat that you're not going to get dessert well then yeah. that does two things one is it gives a threat that you have to follow through on and then secondly it gives dessert an unjust status as something that has to be waited for after yeah. you endure something that you don't like mm -hmm. we have dessert and the way I go about that, because there is always a bit of negotiation, you know, um, because getting children to eat a lot of different things is also hard work and it takes a lot of uh, yeah, <laughs> repetition. Um, I explain to them that we often have dessert. Sometimes there's no dessert because I just didn't make one or I didn't do my shopping properly. So sometimes it's like, well, look, guys, today there's no dessert. But when there sometimes is dessert... Sometimes you're human, you're saying. <laughs> often, sometimes I lose the, the track of things. So when there is dessert and they don't want to eat because either they don't like it or they just can't be bothered, I explain to them that this is the healthy part of the dinner or the lunch and they have to eat most of it because if I let them eat none of it and then I let them eat the dessert, I would be a terrible parent. That my job is to make sure they grow and they're healthy. I say, what, so do you think I'm going to let you eat no main course and then eat just your dessert? What would that make me? That makes me a bad parent. That's the way I explain it to them. You know, a parent that just gives sugary things to their children. So then they kind of understand why. So it's not that I don't let them have the dessert if they haven't finished their plate as a punishment and as dessert being a treat that's being removed. You say, look, you know, you have to eat the healthy stuff first if you want to have the sugary things. Dessert are always kind of sugary, you know, with us. So that's kind of the, the way I explain it. So it happens as well. Sometimes I say, look, fine, you don't want to eat your main course, but I, like, I, I will not let you have the dessert because I would, you know, I, would, I would be doing a bad job as a parent if I let you have just your dessert and not your main course. That's a really good point. So it is a negotiation, but it's, it's the truth. It's the truth. It's not that I want to punish them for not eating my food. I know it's not always amazingly tasty because healthy food often isn't. Well, that's a really good point, Chan, that you're letting down the job of parenthood when you don't enforce the rules. It's not just you that's being impacted. It's the world that's being impacted. If you say to a child, no, you can't have that. You have to eat your peas before you get your candy or whatever. And then you go back on your word, which is natural. Everyone does it. But the reason why it's so devastating is because you're not keeping your word as a parent. So when you do what you do, which is you pop out of negotiation and you bring understanding to the situation. So that changes everything. You put it in the context of, I'd be a bad parent if I let you do that. It yeah. wouldn't be good for you if for I health. was a bad parent. Yeah. 
And the way that I always looked at my children was it's their job to resist me. And it's mm -hmm. my job to enforce the rules. I was not popular. And mm -hmm. the high school years sucked mm -hmm. for both mm -hmm. kids because they were pushing back so much. But at the yeah. end of the day, when I went to bed at night, I just said, okay, they did a really good job. I mean, I didn't always say that. Sometimes <laughs> I cried. Sometimes I yeah. overdrank. Sometimes, you know, I mean, it just, you cope. But at the end of the day, I understood it was their job and what they had to do. I guess, mm -hmm. to be honest, I understood my role too. And it sounds like you understand your role in guiding these human beings. So practically, how does it really work out in your home? If one child doesn't want to eat, does he get influenced by the other siblings? Or does he end up crying and going to his bed without dessert? Or does he come around and eat the offensive broccoli Usually. or whatever? usually they'll try and I'll try to make it a success for everyone usually you know they'll try um, you know a few bites of something we usually we we say you know you don't like it but you're five years old so you're gonna have five bites something like that you know oh. so I'm sure I'm sure there's parenting experts that would say it's probably not good I don't know it, it, it works so it's just, no, it's and they look great. at me so so you need to eat 35 bites of yours I'm like oh okay <laughs> They know yeah. their numbers. And you know what? We also forget about how little their tummies are. And we put <laughs> huge portions on the plate. And then we're like, eat it, eat it. And then they get fat. And we wonder why. So what do we do? We start thinking that being fat's okay because we can't change it. And so now we have all these little, well, in America, we have all these little butterballs literally okay. waddling around like, you know, uh, what do you call it? The Tommy mm -hmm. Tippy Cups. Because they're not exercising, they're eating, you know, prepackaged food, they're eating the wrong things, they're eating the sugary desserts, but they don't have a guide. That's the problem. If this is your guide, this thing, it ain't going to tell you what to do and it ain't going to tell you how to eat healthy unless we can put you on here teaching us what to do because it's just... And also food is not just food. Uh, food is usually, it's a meal we're talking about. We're not talking about just about eating. We're talking about sitting down and we're talking Tell us about more the, about that. The, so that, that could be, I don't know if it's a French thing. Um, it's, it's very common in France. In any case, that you just, you sit down with your family for, for lunch and for dinner. And, and when I grew up, we also sat down for breakfast. So you have, you know, the tablecloth, the plates, uh, the bread is in the middle of the table, the butter, the jam, the selection of cereals here, you know, so that's what, what I grew up with. So it's, it's a bit simplified now with my children. And depending on what's going on in our life, you know, they get a lovely, fancy homemade breakfast and in the bad times they get cereals, you know, but we still all sit down, especially as they get bigger. And I really make sure that, that they consider this as a meal, not just, I don't want them to eat standing. I don't want them to eat in the car, to eat running around, going to places. So we sit down, we have breakfast and then we tidy up, you know, the table and then that's it. Kitchen is closed till lunch. And then the kitchen reopens, you know, <laughs> there's lunchtime, you set the table again, you know, the knives, the forks, the, the jug of water, and you bring the pot on the table, and you serve everyone, and then we eat. I get them, I'm reaching the stage now where I really expect them to sit down for the duration of the meal, which is often quite short, and because they still want to move around, you know, like when they were little. But as they get bigger now, it becomes more of a, a family thing, you know. And then that's it. After lunch, that you know they know what to do. They put their little plates in the dishwasher, um, and then I 
usually clean up the rest or give them a little task. And then that's it. Kitchen is closed until snack time. <laughs> and then it reopens, you know, and then snack. Uh, sometimes we're out and about and I'll get them something, you know, a little bar or snack. Or, and then again, dinner time, then it happens. It's a lot of work to make it a, a family moment. Um, yeah. And it's lovely, I think. And I, I never thought I would enjoy that, you know, when I grew up. But what a, a big pleasure of being a mom is to have everyone sitting down at the table and eating, you know, more or less eating at least. Just to be all together, sitting down, you know, and to think that you can have that several times a day. So it goes without saying, perhaps, that you probably don't let the kids have digital at the table, right? (laughs) No. Okay, just uh, your response tells me that's true. You laughed at me, Dad. (laughs) Just occasionally, my husband still has his phone at the table, is checking something, and I have to go, giving the dirty look, you know, until until phone is down. I'm like, you know, it's like, (laughs) drop the phone. And, uh, I love it. Jan is so strong. She tells her to call her husband to put his uh, phone down. I love at, it. At the table. And you see, that was something that, that I was actually a bit shocked uh, by when I, you know, when I was working for Google. And sometimes we'd have to travel to America for work and to meet the other teams. And I remember a couple of years ago, we all went to Tahoe, you know, and to, for a big all-hands meeting. And we met our equivalent American team, you know, we were the European team, there was the American team, the Japanese team, and we were all at the dinner table in a fancy restaurant, um, all sitting down, you know, next to me, this Italian girl from my team, the other side of me, that Spanish person from my team, and opposite us were a few Americans, and they had their phones at the table, and they were checking their mails while we were speaking, you know, so we were having conversations, and, and they would just drift down from conversation, and they were scrolling up and down, you I presume it was mail, but it could have been their Instagram or something. And it was just in Europe and in most countries, it would have been considered very rude. You know, phone should be done at least, to, you know, especially when you're meeting people for, for work, I guess. So I just, I thought that was a bit shocking, you know, a bit, a bit rude even, you know, but again, it's, it's different cultures. So you don't know, it might not mean that it was rude for them, but how would you feel if you were having dinner with someone and the person would be on their phone? Oh, it happens all the I time think- over here. But culture is context, and yet culture doesn't always get it right. So just because we're allowed to do it and it's become acceptable that you go out to dinner and literally every person at the table will have their phone in their face and they're not interacting with each other, but that behavior moves into the home seamlessly. It's Mm -hmm. not just out in restaurants, you know? Yeah, I suppose we'll see how we handle that. Our children are still small, but what I would... Imagine the way I would do it was to expect that there's no phones at the table. Just leave the phone on the other side of the room. If you have an emergency call from a friend that can't wait, you know. Um, yeah, when we were kids, if the phone rang, the parents would pick up the phone. You know, do you know when you had house phones, landline? We don't have landlines anymore. But if someone rang during dinner time, it would be unusual in France, you know, for someone to ring at 8 p.m. because everyone is having their dinner. But if someone did, you know, you, you wouldn't see the kids running and picking up the phone on the landline. It would have been the parents um, to do. So if someone had to get distracted from dinner to handle a phone conversation, it was usually the job for the parents. So I suppose we didn't have the problem grow, growing up. So I hope that when our kids get bigger, they'll, I don't know, I heard families that put, everyone grab, puts the phone in a basket and the basket goes on the other side of the room for the duration of the dinner, which sounds reasonable. You know, it's not too hard. 
it's not too tough on the kids. It's not going to traumatize them. And going back on that, that dinner with the, the American and the European team, I don't know whether it's accepted. It's still, it, it sounds like it's bad manners, though, to go for dinner with people and I not pay attention of, to what's going on. One of on. the most offensive things is that no one asks permission or says what they're doing. So mm -hmm. I'll just give a little example. And granted, this whole conversation that I'm going to share is based upon trust that she was telling the truth. But I took an employee, a doctor, a naturopath, to a conference once. And this was early on in cell phones. It wasn't recent, maybe 2010, 2011 or something. And during the conference where there was a doctor lecturing to us, she was on her phone the whole time. And I thought, now granted, I think I looked and saw what she was doing. But at one point, I confronted her and I just over dinner and I was just like, you know, I'm a little discouraged that you were so disengaged from the event that you were on your phone the whole time when the guy was lecturing because I want you to be able to use that knowledge. And she said, oh, I was taking notes. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Like taking notes on digital, that to <laughs> me was antithetical. Like you don't take notes on digital at that time. It was so long ago. But my point is that the perspective can be very different of what you're using the phone for. So I'll often look things up in the middle of a conversation. Like they say something to me, it sparks my memory. I'm using it like a Dewey Decimal system. And then I can relate to the conversation differently, better, whatever. Yeah. I can contribute, added knowledge. I think that's a good use of digital. Now, whether it needs yeah. to occur at the dinner table or not is a whole nother question. But I think that not asking or not telling people what you're doing is where the difficulty comes in. So this yeah. physician could have told me ahead of time, hey, I'm going to take notes on my phone. But I'll be very honest, she was doing it under the table like she was hiding and, and she was looking down under the table as though it was something to hide. I would think that if you're doing notes and it's okay, you would do it above board, above table. But regardless... She never checked in with me. And as her boss that was paying the bills to be there and expecting her to learn, I didn't know if she was, I don't think mm -hmm. Instagram existed back then, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, so it's a the good intentionality point, but... of what you use digital for, because it does matter if you're looking up something that's going to help the conversation. It almost doesn't matter if it's on Instagram, Facebook, or Google. It doesn't matter. It's about being respectful of the environment that you're in. And you're showing your children that you respect the human interaction so much that you're willing to, well, I don't think you get too much flack anymore. It's just understood. But there is a point in time that a lot of parents that are currently just letting digital run wild are going to have to put up some barriers that are painful. Do you have any suggestions for that of how you... And pretend that they don't have five kids because I see a little bit of an influence happening within your family that one child could positively impact the whole rest and obviously vice versa. Mm -hmm. But what if you just have a couple of kids? I guess they could influence too, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. what's, what's your uh, secret for dealing with resistance from your kids? Because when you come home from work after a nine, 10 hour day commuting, you got to put food on the table. You got to do homework. You're miserable yourself. And then you've got to fight with your kid about digital. What are your suggestions or anything, I guess, mm -hmm. going to bed, brushing your teeth? Yeah, I think it's very hard, first of all, to be 
you know, to be working, commuting, and then expecting to be parenting in the evening. It's life can be very hard. And I understand why people don't want to fight and or want to take shortcuts. I mean, we're sometimes we're there too, you know, there's times when we're tired and we want everyone to be in front of the TV watching a movie or we let everyone play on their tablets, which are have been purchased for educational purpose for the homeschooling. So first of all, is to be honest, you know, that I guess there's a time, there's a time for everything. Now, I think if the parent realizes that technology is really taken over and it's being used in an unhealthy way, then the parent has to be the parent and has to be the bad cop, you know, and just find ways to reduce the time, you know, set rules and stick to them. So I guess it's probably easier if the kids are younger. Uh, but again, you come back to the whole parenting thing is that if you tell your kids to do something, do they listen to you or do you have to negotiate? Or Because it's the same for everything. Yeah. If you have young children, you tell them, you wait for me when before crossing the road. Do they go and cross by themselves? Or, you know, now it's time to turn off the tablets, you know, turn them off, turn it off now. Sometimes they don't, you know, I say, oh, guys, I'd say, you do it now. You don't do it in five minutes. Um, you just have to insist, I think, to make sure it becomes a rule. And I think if you're consistent, they'll know that you're not, uh, that you are serious and that you're not going to give in. And I think you can always regain control. Um, now, again, we don't have teenagers, so we don't know how hard it's going to be. Um, but what we hope is that if they know from a young age that, you know, when mommy and daddy want something, set a rule. And if you break that rule, usually something happens, you know, some form of consequence. Um, we hope that by the time they reach the teenage years, they know that, you know, we have that power over them. Yeah, I see consequence without... Just not punishment, but then punishment. I mean, there's, con- there's consequences to everything in life. They have to understand, you know, you cross right. the road without watching. There's consequences to that. You know, you, right. uh, I also tell them that too much technology will just melt their brains, you know. And I think it's true. Same for us, you know. Uh, so we try to get them to understand, look, now we're going to ask you to turn off all your tablets. We're going to spend the next couple of hours just playing with our toys or you can play outside with your friends. And yes, they don't like to to stop. They never do. But, you know, if you just insist and they're kids, they're going to go and find something else to do. <laughs> That's uh, true. But, they're but curious I... <laughs> little beings. You had an interesting idea yesterday about giving them time, yes. how you break up their... Well, actually, yeah. you said more. You talked about the dopamine pathway yes, yes. and digital. Mm-hmm. And tell us everything that you said yeah. to me yesterday. That was fascinating to me. Yeah, so the, there's two things there. So we try to limit the screen time because we, we have a few kids and we just want to be sure to get to enjoy life as it is real life. You know, So sometimes real life is playing outside with your friends, is riding your bike, is getting scratches on your knees, you know, is... <laughs> you don't get too many scratches from digital. That's a good point. That I must say digital, at least one of the positive aspects that it keeps your house clean, usually. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so That's good. So how you have so, a technique for how you disengage your kids yes. from digital. Because we're not saying that you don't embrace digital. You do. You and your husband it's, just going to be the future use it yeah. wisely. And you manipulate digital. You don't let digital manipulate you. So tell us mm-hmm. your uh, techniques yeah. that you've learned. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's something that I read through just doing research on that is that when kids are engrossed in a video game or a- any type of game, you know, something that you enjoy, you release dopamine. So to expect the children to stop it straight away will create 
a fight and a conflict because you're just breaking a situation, you know, that brings them dopamine, which is so, which is a horrible feeling. It's like when you enjoy a good book and someone interrupts you, it's the most annoying thing. So it's the same for them. So then a way to help them disengage healthily would be to sit with them and start commenting on what they're doing. You know, oh, I can see you're playing, you know, Super Mario and oh, look at you, you're getting all the coins and you're doing brilliant. What's your score? Tell me what, and who's that character? Try to talk and get them to stop being so engrossed in that video game. So they start talking back to you and they slowly disengage. And then you say, do you know what time it is, right? It's eight o'clock. It's time we go upstairs. It's time to go to bed now. So will you turn off your game now? And you get much better compliance, you know, if you do it this way than if you just tell them, okay, now it's eight o'clock. You have to stop right now because I said so. Hmm. Um, So it works as well, but that's a power struggle. And I wonder how long that last you know because it won't be long before my kids are bigger than me and have beards and all and so will they listen to me when I say now you stop your video games so there's a gentler way to do it and a more effective way to do it and it's always nice to to avoid conflict if you can and it doesn't always work and sometimes we just have to raise our voice and say okay guys time's up of course um well you that's a really interesting technique Jan and what I love about it is it's gently bringing them from one state to another (laughs) So it's a very real phenomenon that we get into states, energetic states. And when you're physiological, yeah. Say it again. And physiological state, like when you're on dopamine, when you're, you're a bit high. And those games are are programmed to get you to be in that dopamine pathway. So it's hard for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's completely. Appreciate that. It's hijacked their emotions their body everything is being like jiving with that video game and what you're doing is you're gently bringing them from one realm back into the other it's kind of like being woken up by a soft gentle touch hi honey good morning i love you versus a get up (laughs) the alarm right so you can help your child transition from one state to another in a loving, kind way. And so your suggestion, which I just think is brilliant, I don't know if you came up with it on your own, but is you get on their level, which is always a good idea, and you start asking probing questions that show interest in what they're doing because they are interested. And if you just hit them over the head with a scene change, like, oh, you got to go brush your teeth, that's not compelling enough. Brushing your teeth doesn't move the needle with dopamine. I mean, unless you're really weird, but you know, unless you're a dentist, no, I'm kidding. But you know, you, you get my point that it's not compelling enough, but you as a human being getting close, asking questions, I don't, I guess I'm assuming that you're not saying ask the questions from across the room. You're talking about getting nearby, getting energetically near your child and getting to know them, even if they're playing a stupid game. And if they're playing a violent game that you don't like, get it out of your home. (laughs) Seriously, why should you tolerate something in your home for your children that you wouldn't tolerate for yourself? How uh, crazy making is that? So, you know, I, and also you said something really interesting yesterday in prep for this video. You said uh, that you don't let your, you don't, okay, you guys just remodeled or built a home. I don't remember, but yeah. 
you didn't create a media room just for the kids. You created a true family room, and it's the only room where there's digital, right? Or TV. yeah, absolutely. Tell us about that, how you made that decision with your husband and what it means practically to your family. The first thing to understand is that um, in Europe, in general, properties are way smaller and way more expensive than in America. But but I see what you can get for a couple of millions uh, in California in terms of a house and what you can get in Ireland or, you know, in Dublin or in London in in the UK or in France is always a lot smaller. So we live in the capital city, so real estate is very expensive. So we're very lucky. <laughs> I find it fascinating that you just compared yourself to LA and you actually are saying you're more expensive. I've we, been no, house we are, we are. Oh I, my God. Uh, well, look, I don't know. All I see is, you know, on those um, online on videos and you see, you know, the house that the Kardashians bought for 4 million. And, you, and we have houses going down, down the road for 10 million euro, you know. And yes, they have sea view and it's just, it's a small country and there's a lot of people and everyone wants to live in the same area. So I'm sure you can get a house much cheaper than that in the Irish countryside where no one wants to go, where there's no jobs. That's, it's always possible. So first of all, so we, we had space limitations, if you want. We have five children and our children will be sharing bedrooms forever until they move out. That's the first reality. And we like that as well. I think we would probably have made it this way. Uh, So we chose to have to keep a bedroom, which could have been allocated to one or two children, we chose to keep this as an office, as a home office, because my husband works from home. Uh, well, our architects recommended that to make it a TV room. He was like, he was like surely you're not going to, you know, when your kids get bigger, or surely you want to have, you know, the, the good living room. It's a very Irish thing. You know, you have the good room, and then you have the real room, you know, where the kids actually um, watch TV and, you know, the horrible sofa covered in biscuit crumbs. So that's, it's very, you know, here when people have a bit of money and can get a second room, they, they do a kid's living room or a playroom. Oh. For me, this is a nonsense. It's just like it really goes against a lot of my beliefs. Um, so we chose not to, we chose to allocate this room as a home office because we needed a home office. And as well that we wanted to be able to interact as a family differently. So then we created a massive open space that's a kitchen and a, a huge living room. That's it. And there's one TV. So the architects were pushing to put TV plugs in every bedroom. And I was like, I mean, first of all, who has TVs nowadays? Like we have enough devices in the house as it is. If for whatever reason we allow them to watch a movie in their bedroom, which we we've never done so far, they could always watch it on a laptop, on a tablet. So we didn't need TV plugs in the rooms. I think TV is something from the past, you know. But anyway, we have a, a, a nice TV and it's in the living room. And yeah, it's there and that's it. And if you want to use the TV, well, there's a time for kids to use the TV and there's a time for adults to use the TV, which is when we want and also in the evening. And if you want to go at the video games, when then, yeah, you're going to get a go and you're going to wait for your go and you're going to wait for your turn and because there's only one TV and then one so Xbox. How long do you give each boy to do a video game before it's time to move on to the next one? Yeah, so that it's a very hard question. In the past, you know, when we grew up, we had video games. When I was a child, my husband did as well. You would play a game. So when you lost... Well, you always... You already mentioned my favorite, Super Mario. That's my all-time yeah. favorite. Here we go! <laughs> it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a brilliant game, and it was really family-friendly and multiplayer and really yeah. good. Um, so but you see, when you died, you would pass on to the next person. 
to, you know, so you would get a go each time you had a, you lost your life as a Super Mario, you'd pass on to your brother, your sister. That's how you shared. But nowadays you need to understand that there are a lot of video games where you never die. You know, you just walk around, you think about Minecraft. It's like a Lego you build with Lego bricks. It, it's I didn't never know ending. That. You don't die. You don't lose points. You just make things. So when do you stop? Then when is it time to hand over the controller to your sibling? So then we had to decide on a just time, a time system because we realized that not every game allows for sharing when you've just lost a game, when you've lost your, your turn. So if you, so we, you know, obviously this changes, you know, depending on their age, but roughly we allowed video games on the weekends, weekend being Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday. And they can have an hour each per day, which I think is very generous. So they can have an hour Friday an hour Saturday, an hour Sunday. Each. Each. Well, I'd be willing to bet that there are children out there that can't go an hour without (laughs) the digital a day. I'm not joking, Jan. This is reality. But what you just said actually is a very interesting psychological construct that we need to talk about next time, about how the games that we grew up with had an end. And you can kind of call it a happy ending in the case of Mario because that knowledge was passed down to the next kin or generation or whatnot. But in games like Minecraft, which the only thing I know about Minecraft is that it's violent. That's all I know. I don't participate in any of those. I don't even watch them okay. or know of them. But it's okay. it here it is a violent. violent game, not mm-hmm. a, even a happy game, and it yeah. never ends. That's really a telling tale. Yeah, yeah. So you have to put an artificial construct on the game because it doesn't end. You have to tell that child who never wants it to end anyways. You become the bad guy saying, oh, Mm -hmm. it's ending now. Yeah. But you know, I mean, it's a, that's the beauty of having several children. If you want is that sharing is a huge part of life and it's a huge frustration. So I have a question. When your one child has the one hour with the device a day, do you, Mm -hmm. or what days you allow it, do you allow the other children to watch and sit next to them and participate? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So So really you're not doing one hour a day. You're just doing one hour a day where one person drives the bus. Exactly. And they can choose, they can share, you know, so if we have a few games that are multiplayer, um, there's even a few games when the others can join in on the tablet. I mean, our kids, are, they're very lucky, you know, they, they have, I think it's a great deal for them. Of course, they would prefer to play all day. <laughs> well, I have a uh, question. Are they lucky because your husband's a digital mastermind or you're particularly smart in an area of digital or are they lucky because they're just consuming good content? Well, no, I think they're lucky that we let them play video games so much, you know, as per my standard, I think they're playing enough because as you said, it's an hour each, but if they're nice and if they if they played nicely, they could join in with another device and because they know I will always be happy if they play all together and have good fun all together. You know so I mean? you create in your own family a little network, basically. You allow other devices mm-hmm. in on mm-hmm. the same game or the yes, same... Yeah, absolutely. So, some games are just allow multiplayer and it's fun to all join in. It's still a game, you know, I mean when you have several several children and old boys in our case you know there's a lot of fighting it's a big frustration as a parent you know the rivalry and the way they fight so when i see that they all play nicely whether it's outside in the garden or together on the video games i think it should be encouraged um so it seems like the video games might help them with 
getting along in the garden or in yeah, life? I mean, it's, a, it's still a game. If it's used uh, appropriately and under supervision, it's still a game and they're great fun. And they shouldn't be demonized too much, you know? Um, like everything. Uh, and I think just I want the kids to learn that they can play and they can have fun. And then at some stage, it's time to stop. Because that's the same in life, you know? You can have fun, you can have a drink, and then some stage you have to stop. And <laughs> stop the party, stop the eating, stop... Uh, so it's good that they experience, you know, enjoyable activities and they know these have an end. And yeah, yeah, it's kind of, it sucks when you stop something that you like. But I mean, it's, it's life. And sometimes you give your turn. Uh, you know, it could be you go to a party and it's your time not to drink because you're driving everyone home. <laughs> they, they will have so many situations in their future. Well, they'll have to make uh, those choices and understand that uh, they're not going to have the perfect deal. It's very important. I think it's brilliant. Uh, the setup we have of having just one TV, one Xbox. We have a, a few, few tablets that they're allowed to use under supervision and that they know that there's a time for fun, there's a time for hard work, there's a time to stop, there's a time for bed. Because at the end of the day, one day they'll be living their own life and we hope they can self-regulate. Uh, so we hope that by doing this now, they will experience enough frustration and enough understanding of those different feelings. You know, uh, The happy feeling, the, oh, I better stop and start working feeling well if you really think about it jan and i'm going to close up here you've been so generous with your time but it's kind of like homeopathy in general if you give your child a little discomfort and for those that don't know homeopathy is based upon the premise that you put energy and a little bit of something into something else and it influences things so if you and it can influence things actually more profoundly than an overwhelming preponderance of that drug or chemical. So the subtlety of causing a little pain in your child's life and putting up with a few temper tantrums or some pushback is where the joy of parenting comes. The problem is as parents, we don't want it. We don't want the fight. We're too tired. We're too stuck <laughs> being miserable and being parents to understand it's their job. And a little discomfort now is going to pay off. There's a great quote that says, if everything is easy, life will be hard. Yeah, and, and it's so true. And so, it's so true. true. And, and coming back to the topic of motherhood, and I should say parenthood in, in general, is that it's not about us, it's about them. Of course, it's going to be hard for us. Everything, every effort we put in now, hopefully, will be less problems to deal with in the future because what we want is... Um, adult children that are healthy, that are happy, that are balanced, that are hopefully fulfilled or on the way to fulfilling their, um, their aspirations. And this comes by working during their childhood on teaching them very important skills. And frustration is a huge part of it because I think we'll both agree that adult life is very frustrating and it's very hard. So they need to experience that and start understanding that as children, you know that there will right. be good times and bad times. If you just give them a dream, magical childhood, they're in for a really rough time. Once they'll be, you know, grown-ups, you know, running their own life. And you're right, I think um, if we give them, if we make their life too easy as children, then the chance for them to be unhappy and finding life difficult as adults is high. And that's not what we want for them. Yeah, so I'd love to talk to you about this next time, if you'll allow me. It's the... We've swung too far on the pendulum from 
overt abuse, you know, and being terrible to our children and Mm -hmm. having it be tolerated from an institutional point of view, whether it's Boy Scouts, Catholic Church, doesn't Mm -hmm. matter, whatever it is, we know about the ritualistic problems in those organizations. Then we went full swing over to this good job, bad job, praising for pooping, letting them do anything, letting them eat anything to the point that we're now creating this anxious, unhealthy, very, very stressed out. Like I've heard there are two-year-olds that are in therapy because they're so stressed out. I mean, what we're doing in a sense is we are, not you, Jan, we're anthropomorphizing or whatever you say, those children into being little adults. And we ascribe to them the fact that we should or we think they can handle the digital decisions that need to be made. I know freaking adults that can't make digital decisions. They click on the bad stuff. They watch the bad stuff. They get enmeshed enmeshed in it. How can you expect a child to know the difference? And if you're sitting there watching it yourself, like you said, you two, you and your husband are leading by example. You're not there doing this saying, put the phone down, put the phone down, Henry, put the phone down. You're not doing that. You're leading by example. And you're finding the joy in doing that. The disaster in parenting comes from the disconnect of do as Mm -hmm. I say and not as I do. And the child goes, well, screw you. I'm watching you. I'm believing your actions, mom and dad. And if your actions and your words don't jive, I'm out. They're like, peace out. Kids from the time they're babies, they know the difference. Don't you think? You have from age one month to 10 years. Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. They know Absolutely. if you're authentic. They know if you're shaming them for their weight and you're overweight. They know Absolutely. that. I mean, there's all sorts of craziness that goes on in families. Anyways, you're doing this with such grace and such inspiration. And I thank you so much, Jan. We have so many more things we could touch on. Any final words you want to share with us before we sign off? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a journey and it's, it's difficult, this whole parenting thing. But one shouldn't forget that it's always time to, to correct. It's always time to try harder and it's always time to, to try better. And we make tons of mistakes like every day. But it's, it's really about trying, trying better the next time and the next day and just never giving up. And, right. Yeah. In our culture in America, we have an all or none mentality, a win-lose. It's you know, really, the type of bargaining yeah. that we do. It's not collective, collaborative bargaining. It's divisive bargaining where there always has to be a winner and a loser. And politics is you know, the most mm-hmm. glaring example of that. But it happens in schools. It happens everywhere. And what you're describing is helping us to understand that there isn't just this binary universe. And I use that term very, you know, strategically because you and your husband are both in digital. So it's a binary world. But I think that what they're learning in quantum mechanics and quantum physics is it's not a binary world. Mm -hmm. And so you're having that impact on your child in a way that's going to blossom and mushroom, not in an on-off, yes, no way. But there's such payoffs ahead for you because of the way you are nurturing these seeds. They're basically seeds. And you're not just throwing them out like wildflowers and letting the wind and the earth and everything else kind of determine whether or not they grow. 
You're not throwing spaghetti in the form of human beings at the wall. You're making a conscious decision to do things in a way that is not just nostalgic, but it's actually forward thinking too, because you guys have the education and the know-how to incorporate the future into the past. And that's like where it's at is you can look down the periscope of the future and see where we're headed because of your knowledge, but you also are calling on some level of wisdom from the past. So hats off to you, Jan. I just love talking to you. Like I said, hardest job in the world. I'd go to medical school five times over raising children. Although I'd like to try it over. Honestly, I'd love to do what you're doing. So I'll do that with my grandchildren, hopefully. But I have great boys. Oh, look at that baby. A perfect time to raise him up. For those of you that are just listening, there is a one-month-old little angel. What is his name? Uh, Dennis. Dennis, with one N. I love that. I'm all about eliminating duplicity and duplication in our language. It's the French spelling. Yeah, Dennis. D-E-N-I-S. Yeah, it's the Saint Patron of Paris. (laughs) Nice. You only need one N. I love it. Hello, Dennis. Oh, he woke up. What an adorable little boy. Well, thank you, Jan. And we look forward to talking to you again. Once again, I'm Elizabeth, your host of the Not Old Yet Global Podcast, and today we are live with Ireland, Jan from (laughs) Ireland, and yes, this is a global movement. If you enjoyed this session on parenting, please hit the like button and leave your comments. We'd be happy to answer them. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah.